Hey, it's Tia Carrere, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. watching him watching us (laughs) let's do it to them in front of her while he (laughs) thinks about us with him behind them as they know what we see (laughs) it was a complex script wasn't it (laughs) so i think it was one by um what's his name that guy that tinto brush Okay, so in this scene, I want you to look at her. Yeah, I've got it. Wait. But he is <laughs> speaking of us, right? <laughs> While they are with them and her. And no, actually, she that, is bearing her window to the soul. <laughs> oh, she's got her ass out. <laughs> but that sounds like um, that's like a meld between Tinto Brass with all the eroticism and and also like Godfrey Ho stuff. Where oh, yeah. So you're like, he's talking about him and them and us and her and him. And then you look at the script, it's like Dave and Brian, Gary and Martin. Um, Speaking of eroticism, there's going to be quite a lot of that this episode. So I I hope our listenership are all 18 plus because I'm going to be talking about some, I'm going to be talking about some copies. Let's get out of Tinto Brass Tax. Um, So, have I just stumbled across the episode title there? (laughs) (laughs) Let's make a note of Tinto Brass Tax. Um, the most important thing we've got to talk about this week, uh, hello everyone, welcome to Kino Kingdom 79, is obviously the sad passing of Michael Gambon. He of the chocolatey voice. It's ridiculous, his voice, isn't it? His voice is still resonating. I know, it's still going. He's, he's died a few days ago. If, if he was buried alive and then spoke in that casket, it would just shatter with the resonance of his voice. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he did have gravitas. He was around for a while as well. He started acting in the mid '60s. '60s. He he's acted for six decades. Um, I, I'm just on his Wikipedia page and I scrolled down. Obviously, we know what Michael Gambon looks like, and he's kind of always looked that way. Scrolled yeah. down a bit, I thought, Christ, he looked different when he was younger. But it's actually just a picture of Laurence Olivier, which is <laughs> a different man. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm pretty sure this is like Walter Matto, and there's just no picture of him when he was young he's always he's always age man yeah or tommy lee jones um he never was young tommy lee jones can literally hide 50 pence pieces on his face (laughs) Um, have you um when were you introduced to michael gambon um i think it was uh the harry potter no not really the harry potter movies although i suppose that is what he's most famous for dumbledore Harry Potter, but I don't know anything about that, so that definitely was not where I was introduced. I think I was introduced to him um, either because there's two standout memories, and it must have been around the same time. Open Range, where with Kevin Costner and uh, uh, Duval, Robert Duval, mm. and he get Michael Gambon plays the like tyrannical boss of the town who wants to wipe out the Open Rangers, basically. And I just found it such an odd piece of casting because I like because he's such an avuncular figure, Gambon. And, and yet he's playing this snarling Irish mobster, essentially. 
he's actually Irish in real life, but it just isn't really, it was so cast against type. But then also around the same time, my other key memory of him was a, a TV film called The Lost Prince, which was um, made by Stephen Polikoff. And it was about Prince John, this epileptic prince, basically, who's essentially hidden away by the royal family in the early 20th century. It's a true story. And Michael Gunn plays Edward Seventh, And that's where his like avuncular charm and warmth and playfulness was really on show. And he, and he's sort of his role is to kind of spend his time distracting this poor, <clears throat> like stricken kid from the political horrors of like World War One and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's just a really cool movie all around. The Lost Prince and Michael Gambon's really made an impact in that for me. So they're my memories of him. The, the <clears throat> I'm just looking at this because he's always been a, what the Americans would term a character actor, I suppose, where he rocks up in a lot of films. Um, yeah, and what, steals the um, scene. What um what is the British equivalent of a character actor? Um, I don't know what you call it. Just an actor, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> we really simplify things, don't we? <laughs> yeah. A lift um, instead of elevator. Actor. I don't know. It, of character actor. I feel like there's a bit of a. I don't, it seems a bit of a stigma type <clears throat> thing being a character actor, but I don't think it should be. Like I think of some of my favourite actors like Scoot McNary, who's basically his most of his film career has been playing tiny parts in movies but he's always brilliant um, it's kind of like him it, it's it reminds me of um i'm gonna forget the names now like is it is it john hawks and yes yes um, it is oh god and philip baker hall who mm-hmm. that you you see them rocket up in films here and there and then every time you watch like an indie film where they're the star kind of yes. like leland orsa where they just you're yes. clearly amazing and have a really idiosyncratic screen presence that is like only they can do and, it, and so it's when you kind of think oh, I kind of like that person, it's always worth seeking out some indie film where they are the lead because they just yeah. it's almost like they really think, oh, my God, I'm the lead. And they just grab it with both hands and force it into their mouth. <laughs> I think my problem with the, the idea of a character actor is that it suggests that they're a failed movie star somehow that, you know, actually the normal state of things is to be like starring in things. Otherwise you fail. But. It's not really true. I think it's actually much more common for actors to be doing the kind of bit parts here and there, getting the work where they can, and then occasionally doing like <clears throat> having a big role in a small production or whatever. <clears throat> and I think that's fine. I think it's just the job of an actor. Anyway, Michael Gambon, yeah. Good yeah. Oh, yes. So going back to that, yeah, I feel, I'm looking at his because he was in the stage in stage from like the 60s. But then if you look at his, his, it's like 65, 73, 74, 85. And then it's in the late 80s, he sort of becomes a regular um, a person in, in movies. And I think the yeah. earliest film I remember seeing him in here is Bullet to Beijing, the Michael, um, the, uh, what's his name, Michael? If only it was Michael Rocket, Michael Caine movies, the Epicurus File, Funeral in Berlin. I watched a couple of them last year, I think. I talked a bit on the podcast. <coughs> they're kind of like really low rent, not low rent, it's, they're just really... What's his name? He plays oh, someone yeah, called like said... Harry Harry Palmer, like a really yeah. sort of down to this like dowdy British spy. Um and they were quite cool. But um I remember him in that, and that's that was it, that was ninety-five. It's just crazy to think he would have been like what in his sixties or like late fifties before Yeah, I suppose it's a bit like Anthony <clears throat> Hopkins or something, like like a late bloomer, so to speak. Um but and of course he was in Wes Anderson's best film. Like Pratic with Steve Zissou. 
the, the gunfights in the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, uh, just where they just literally just drop into a crouching position and just fire unblinkingly without like moving or reloading. I just remember that scene where like where the pirates come in and it's just Jeff Goldblum sat opposite someone and the first thing he does is shoots Jeff Goldblum square in the chest from about three feet away, <laughs> and, and uh, just to kick it off. And of course, that's the the film where. Bill Murray falls down an entire flight of steps and whilst lying on the back says, can everyone leave? I need to spend some time with my son without standing up. That's the kind of comedy you need. Speaking of, I'll be talking about important comedy today, actually. Important comedy and cockies. That's what that's what my theme is for the day. Um, <laughs> oh, so the Life of Christ has got one of my favorite, Michael Gambon's in one of my favorite like comedy moments in that where like um, he says, he says to, uh, uh, Sister Bill Murray, oh yeah, you can you can go on this mission as long as you don't kill the uh, shark. And like and Bill Murray's like, uh, okay, I won't kill the shark, but can you get me my dynamite? <laughs> uh, what a I love it. Such a funny film. Michael Gambon, we hardly knew and yet loved you intensely. Um, yeah, after watch, are you going to watch a few of his films? Well, it's. It's Halloween time, so clearly I'll be watching Sleepy Hollow at least. Oh, that's a good film. That again has got an amazing comedy sequence in it, where that we goes to visit that witch in the woods, mm. and she's like talking to him, and then she leaps at the screen and does a massive jump scare, and it cuts to like Johnny Depp sternly walking out of there and just says, "We're leaving." It's <laughs> <laughs> the best moment that. of the film. Um, and that's got Christopher Walken with buzzing teeth in it as well, isn't oh, it? Yes, it's, it's really yeah. Are we, so we've got obviously a lot, a lot of films flying around today, a lot to talk about. Um, we need to talk about uh, two films we watched at a recent uh, excursion mm-hmm. to a, a a secret hideaway that we have with a group of friends. We don't want to give it away, so we'll call it Cathedral City, um, where cheese was consumed. But uh, yeah, we watched two two Gary Daniels films, and one of them you saw all of. The second yes. one? I'm not sure if you caught Less all of it. Of. No. <clears throat> he, um, well, I'm here to fill in the blanks. Yeah. Let's um, well, we'll talk about Firepower, because I actually have seen that multiple times now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> so this one, and this one's available on Prime. Obviously, they're available on Prime. Cause, uh, <laughs> it's, um, this was a 1993 action thriller. PM Entertainment, of course, and directed by one of PM's founders, Richard Pepin, of course. And it's set in a very retrograde future where everything looks pretty much the same. But, of course, crime is rampant in L.A. And Gary Daniels and Chad McQueen are cops who arrest the swordsman, played by one Jim Helwig, a.k.a. the Ultimate Warrior. And the swordsman escapes and loads of cops are murdered. And then so Gary and Chad want revenge. They go into this forbidden zone, which is not very well explained, but... um, and they need to infiltrate the swordsman's fighting tournament um, uh, in order to take him down because crime is legal in the zone, I think. So they can't just arrest him. So they have to enter this tournament to get to him. And oh, come on, they're, they're investigating a cure for AIDS. Come on. Yeah, there's this whole subplot about it's like a fake cure for AIDS. It's weird. It's like. This, none of this really needs to be in there to sit. Just be mm. a simple revenge picture. Um, so yeah, you know, like Gary Daniels is very overconfident going into fights, whereas Chad is much more humble, building relationships, etc. Um, 
Plus, the fights are partially directed by this evil overlord guy. And you can see where the film is going, really. Like, Chad McQueen is portrayed as the decent one. And yet, he's quite flagrantly cheating on his wife, with whom he has a son, of course. So, my sympathy is limited. And add to that, these cops seem quite happy just to gun down bystanders to get to their goal. So, I'm not sure either of them is of very high moral standing. And also, thing is, right? Gary Daniels can't act, but he does look tough as nails, even with his hair in this movie. And, until and he, he opens his mouth, and then, yeah. and then every line of like dialogue Beckham. from the person he's speaking to is like, "Where are you from again?" Where are you from? Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere between yeah, Brighton and Melbourne. Um, so, but at least he does look the part. Chad McQueen just looks—he's got the body of a fifty-two-year-old man. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, he just looks like an out of shape dad cheering his kid on sports day. He's, a, he's an out of shape dad who is like learned acting from having two TVs set up next to each other, and on one having Mickey Rourke, and on the other Michael Madsen. He's <laughs> yeah. like, a, oh, Mickey Rourke. Yeah, I've got the I've got the stubble of Mickey Rourke. But all I need is a Ford neck carriage. Of yeah, <laughs> he's got the FNC. Don't worry about that. Um, yeah, and also, I mean they're this isn't the main criticism of the film, but the naming of the characters is a bit odd because Ultimate Warrior's character is called the Swordsman, but he's immensely muscular and really ungraceful with the sword. And then you've got Gary Daniels, who's like lithe and swift and flexible, and he's called the Hammer. It's like surely the other way around would have made more sense. But also, um, don't forget, it's, it, it is it is like they've written the cast and names all the wrong way around. I said, oh, fuck it. Because Gary Daniels, they call him The Hammer when he's in that tournament, but his name is Nick Sledge. Um, but of course, Chad McQueen's name is Darren Braniff, which just sounds like an accountant. So like, It's not that Chad? far from Giles Brandreth, is it? Do, do, they give, do they give him a name as well? Yeah, don't they call him something like really lightweight like they try to call him like the pussy and then he like tries to toughen himself up and calls himself the tiger or something and then they, then they just start calling just him something you call a call a toddler but um nick you yeah. can be the hammer Chad, you can be tits the thing is the fight there's a lot of fight scenes in this movie but they're all a bit monotonous and they never really come alive um even with the introduction of weapons, and they just look a bit like rehearsal fights, really. And then mm. you've got Ultimate Warrior, who spends 50% of the movie like raising his arms and yelling in triumph. In fact, Much that's like how his he gets taken wrestling down. career. Yeah. yeah. Like, his inability just to get the job done is basically the reason for his demise in this movie. So, yeah, it's... Spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> yes. It is a bit... I suppose if you're being charitable, you could say it's a blend of Escape from New York and Bloodsport, but that sounds way too good. Um, yeah, it's um, but it is watchable because it does move along quickly and it is pretty much like 70 percent action and 30 percent dumb character moments. So it's very watchable. Yeah. I, I could happily watch it again right now instead of doing this podcast. Yeah. It's one of the ones as well that you could <clears throat> if we didn't talk about it, if we didn't spend so much time talking about Gary Daniels <laughs> and Chad McQueen that we could probably like if you you know if you watched it in two or three years down the line you'd forget you'd seen yeah, it and also yeah. it's it's called firepower and on the cover of the film they're holding mm-hmm. guns now yeah, there's there's very little there's one shoot at the start where they just spent all their budgets has got like cars blowing up and stuff and then after that it's just uh, just get down the industrial estate shall we 
yeah, you've forgotten as well. This is PM Entertainment. This is Richard Pepin. So yeah. there's there's, there's um, written by Michael January, and I'm just looking at what else he's done. Let me scroll down to the 90s there. Um, oh, it's like Firepower to be the best CIA three de- the films I've never Ooh. heard of. Oh, actually, I don't know why I've never heard of him. Because in 2003, he wrote a TV movie called Vitauscht man sein Elton um. So I mean, I'm, I'm constantly watching. Did you ever watch any of those films that that Norwegian bloke in London was talking to me about when he came over and, and just assumed I like metal music because I had a beard? Oh, yeah. Didn't he then, like say the best film ever made was some like rom-com or something? It was, yeah, well, he, I just, he was, I said, you're going to have to, of course, it was really funny because we were there watching a band and he he was talking to me and then when I said I do like a movie podcast he was really excited and he took my phone off me and he was trying to no, Icelandic he was he was trying to type in like Icelandic words into my phone which was just trying to trying to wean it onto the predictive text of English and he was like this is really difficult I said no, no shit um but yeah I sent them on to you and he, and he said well this is the best like Norwegian or Icelandic film wherever and, uh-huh. and, and you sent me a picture of the cover and it was just a silly 90s rom-com yeah <laughs> I never okay. watched it. I'm not sure it'd be available on any common streaming services, to be honest. I will, to that man, I think his name was like Arnold or something. I will get that film on DVD and I'll watch it and yeah. I will judge it. I will just judge for it. you. So, just can you remember the plot of Spoiler? <clears throat> no spoilers. <laughs> wow. Um, yes, I can. So Also um, on Prime. This is... This is this is Gary Daniels, um, also on Prime, obviously. Um, Gary Daniels is, is like a family man, and he commits some sort of menial crime that I don't actually think we ever get to see. He, yeah. he But he's, again, it's a sort of futuristic New York, but it just now, really. Um, and he, everyone just wearing like really like slightly oversized plaid shirts and jeans, what's from Tesco, almost as if it's the early 90s. And he, he gets thrown into prison for a year. And then he, instead of just like waiting out his sentence, because some of it is in suspended animation anyway, so it would really fly by. And he's got like a really young daughter. He just tries to escape and they catch him and say, well, now your prison sentence is going to be longer. And he it just, and it, again, instead of just thinking, OK, right, I'll stay here. He's continually trying to escape and failing. And, and in the end. He, he like meets his daughter when she's like in her 90s on a deathbed that's the main thrust of the plot but we've really got to focus here because i've just spoiled the film and I, I don't care it's called spoiler what do they expect it, not only is it massively mistitled because i they just call people who try to script prison spoilers which is just doesn't really mean it i don't know why it's called no, that yeah. but the actual mechanics of the film just completely fall apart because he, if you <clears throat> the listeners, right? If you imagine you've got like a daughter and then you get put into suspended animation, and I think something like every like five or ten years they've got to come out for a few days because otherwise your joints seize up, which is something mentioned in the film, but never acted upon. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just an it's excuse. One to scene get... where he's a bit he's he's in the canteen, he's feeling a bit <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but then he puts his magazines down, doesn't he, and has lunch. <laughs> and he but he, he, he so he's coming out like after like 30 years in suspended animation or whatever, but all the other prisoners and all the other guards, they're just the same age. So it That's doesn't part. It, it any doesn't sense. Make, yeah. Like there, so much time passes. Um, and it's like, by, at some point it's like 70 years has passed or something stupid like that. And yeah, all the guards, like 
look exactly the same. And I, I couldn't work out, are they meant to be like the grandchildren of the guards, the original guards? Or are the guards put in suspended? Is everyone just put in suspended animation? And also, how is that a punishment anyway? So surely the point of going to prison, okay, part part of the problem with going to a regular prison today in real life is that, yes, lots of time will pass without you being able to see people or do things. But part of that, punishment is the fact that you actually have to experience that waiting time um, yeah. whereas if you just were put to sleep you'd be like oh, okay fair enough i mean it's not great because i don't get to see people but at the same time at least i don't have to sit around like waking up every morning in this prison cell so <clears throat> it's not it's like better than prison today <laughs> yeah it's it, if because it, to be honest if you're like a real real scum of the earth and you're like you're a mass murderer or something and then you go out and act on these fantasies and impulses and you get right, you're going into prison for like 70 years and you come out. You wouldn't have any ties anyway because you, you'd be like a complete sociopath. So it's not that you're going to think, oh, I really miss my nan. You, it's just going to think, well, that was wicked. I just basically had a kip and now they've kicked me out into into society again with a billy on. Um, Jeffrey Coombs is in this film, as is Meg Foster, oh, God, yeah. Brian Janesse and Bruce Glover. So there's quite it was quite nice to see a few people. But well, the other thing that I remember about this film is that apart from the it's massively badly realized and quite boring, is that he, the other prisoners start to like worship him almost as mm. if he's this this yeah. renegade. But he's just if someone just keeps on trying to escape prison and then just Fails. fails every time, it's not it's not impressive, is it? It's stupid. Yeah. And also, like so much time passes, <clears throat> it's like but his legend just seems to grow and grow. But actually, it would just diminish because he's like a failed spoiler um after all these years and no one would remember him at all so or care um but yeah we have to go back to that the thing about his daughter because that is the central thrust of the film and him being reunited with his daughter when she's elderly like it's, it's meant to be like this kind of tragic finale i guess but it, technically it's not tragic at all because he's totally brought this on himself yeah, he, he may have been wrongly in prison, in prison, but if he'd just done his year of time in the first place, he could have shared a life with her. And so it's completely on him. So there's nothing tragic about it. So it also it's also that, that sequence when he sort of finds his like elderly daughter, you know, failing in her 90s and she recognizes him and th- assumes he's an angel. And mm-hmm. she's she's like, oh, who was there? And, and he talks to her. And then her response is, where are you from? What that accent? <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where did you say you were from um <clears throat> yeah so it's it's not it's not good no but... it's not and, it, and also it's like i suppose firepower isn't good either but at least firepower has like consistent action and stuff in it it isn't really trying to tell a profound story whereas this is quite different for from a lot of gary daniels films i've seen because he's actually expected to like act and it has some half-baked ideas in it problem is the idea is so poorly conceived and uh so illogical and then you've got gary daniels who cannot act keep having to remind people of that he can't act you're just desperate for him to kick some ass but he never does it's it's it it really ruins the immersion when he goes into prison in like the year 2342 comes out in 2179 and then as he drops to his knees in this futuristic manhattan the first thing he sees is a guard with a pair of kickers on 
and you're like, have you really embraced the fact that this is the future? Um, it's still a better film than Incoming with Scott Adkins, though. I have to drive yeah. that home. That film is unbelievable. <laughs> it's important we made that distinction. Yes, it's a man with overly plucked eyebrows sitting in a corridor playing with a carpet for 90 minutes. Not fun. <laughs> um, right. Where do we go from here? I bet the listeners are thinking, oh, I really wish I was at that weekend with those guys. It sounds balmy watching two average films. Cathedral <laughs> <laughs> oh City. Goodness. Yeah. Um, shall I talk about The Princess Bride then? Yes, I've been looking forward to this. Yes, absolutely. Which is on ITVX for free. The listeners in the UK. Um, it's the only time you're ever going to go on to ITVX. Uh, this was... Uh, made in a, I want to say 87. But before you carry on, I don't think we've talked about ITVX on the show before. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the search functionalities and the, and the genres, the way they're laid out. Is it actually acceptable? Um, I, I, I was specifically looking for this, so I don't even think I used their search function. Um, but uh, yeah, it seemed like a you know pretty average player. But of course. They have adverts, don't they? Because it's free players. Ah, uh, yeah. And this isn't like freebie where they're about four seconds every 40 years, is it? Yeah. No, this is like big chunks of adverts. And it has like a <clears> countdown <throat> in the corner and it's like, comes up and it says, all right, six minutes of adverts. <laughs> Come on. But it's worth it. And they're, they're the same ones as well, aren't they? I remember this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the same, yeah. Um, This was written by William Goldman and is a bedtime story basically told to a kid about a magical realm where a hot girl played by robin wright falls for a hot stable boy played by carrie always and she is forced into an engagement with a cruel prince called but played by chris sarandon uh and then the stable boy trots off to rescue her basically and along the way he, he accosts the kidnappers um played by wallace sean andre the giant and manly patinkin of course uh, and there are cameos as well from Billy Crystal, Peter Cook, Mel Smith. It's directed by Rob Reiner with a mostly American cast and yet has a very British style of humour. Mm. Like everything is totally downplayed. Every triumph has a slight sheepishness about it um, and a very British desire not to be triumphant or make a fuss. Uh, and actually, yeah, all the main characters are American actors, but they adopt perfect English accents. It is charmingly stagey like really obvious sound stages but i think that's totally consistent with his old-fashioned like errol flynn style saturday matinee adventure tone so it's Mm. it's dated but it always was dated it's harking back to a bygone cinema so it's kind of timeless and we've come full circle i suppose because if you think about if this was to be remade today it probably would be done in the same retro style because that would be cool um uh, it's an amusing script. It's not edgy by any means, but the performances are what make it. Um, it has all these lengthy, almost sitcom-like scenes, and it's essentially a series of showdowns between characters who will either reconcile and become friends or kill each other. I, and I just love its spirit. Like you can't dislike this movie. Certainly, it's like gentle and wholesome and completely without any sharp edges. Uh, and it's unashamedly that way. It has this really lovely schmaltzy score by Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits, obviously. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, and we do. I know we talk on this podcast 
often about how some older films don't hold up. Stand by me, Flight of the Navigator, Short Circuit. I'm looking at you guys. All a bit dodgy. But I think this one does. I think the only, I suppose one criticism that you could have is that it's, it is deliberately generic uh, in terms of its fantasy world. There's no real attention on world building. Like, and they are real. They mention real world places which blend nonsensically with make, made up locations, and all the magic element just seems arbitrary and random. So it's not really for one one for those who want to be drawn into some in, intricately constructed fantasy universe. But I am just I am, <laughs> We must travel to the Castle of Glass over the Bridge of Nothingness. Where's yes. that? Oh, it's near Saffron Walden. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just South America upon Tweed. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm convinced you could show this to a young person today and they'd still find joy in it in a way that those aforementioned movies, they probably wouldn't because of its. Because I think because William Goldman and Rob Reiner are going back to the fundamentals of storytelling, and I think that's what makes it timeless. And the key word is charm, because it manages to not, not take itself seriously, but without the te- without any kind of tedious self-reference or crassness or dumbing down and and, and it's and it's kind of cheesy and endearing but it's not yeah. sentimental it doesn't like it doesn't try yeah. to make you weep it just just fun yes it's just yeah <laughs> yeah it's not quite sentimental it's sort of like it's just charming and nice the thing uh yeah so it's a good film and it still holds up yeah, it's it's one of my f- uh, favorite. I mean, this could be the whole, you, you know, you. This is sort of like a, a film from my childhood that I consider as, as, as sort of magical. You know, where you you watch it and and you see all the characters and the, it's it kind of draws you in. And I mean, I haven't watched the Neverending Story since I was a kid, but that again, the same sort of thing where it just it was one I just watched incessantly as a kid all the time, and it's yes. a lot of good key family memories thrown in with it. So I'm completely biased towards it, but it's. It is one that I've watched. It's always on around Christmas time, isn't it? Or around the holiday season, I guess, yes. just because so many other people watching it, it sort of gets forced up the list. And I'm, I'll always be happy to watch it. because Yes, it's, it's one just... of those movies where if you, if you, well, not that this would ever happen because you don't watch live TV, but if you were to turn live TV on and it happened to be on, you you would end up watching the rest of it. Um, Never ending story, though. I have, I have actually watched that quite recently. And yeah, that's quite a key part of my childhood as well. And it's quite, I'd say it's quite different to Princess Bride. It's, it, I think it falls into the category of weird, like, 80s fantasy and, like, along the lines of, like, Dark Crystal, to an extent, Labyrinth, but more Dark Crystal type thing, um, where pretty sure that young people would find it completely baffling nowadays. But, like, I just love its oddness, the fact that so much money was thrown at this very, very strange, dark fairy tale. Um, yeah, so it's that does hold up, but in a different way. I always, I always get the Dark Crystal mixed up with Dreamstone. I think Dreamstone was a TV show. Yeah, um, Dreamstone's but I, and weird. I used to watch that quite a lot. I'll have to watch that again. But yeah, Dark Crystal, I don't think I've ever seen, or if I have, that's little... one of the puppets. And they did Netflix managed. I don't know how. Um, they, someone managed to convince Netflix to throw a bunch of money at like a TV series of it, like a with full-on puppets and like cg augmented scenes and it was incredibly lavish but a whole series i don't know it's a lot 
I'll have to I'll have to watch The Dark Crystal again. That, maybe I watched that when I was a kid. I think sometimes I used to watch films when I was a kid and they scared me and I just didn't watch them <laughs> ever again. Legend with Tim Curry. <clears throat> yeah, Michael is Satan. The scene in that film where I've got I've, it's always given me a thing about like back jointed knees because when he steps out of the mirror and it shows the hooves, I was like, that's enough for me. Turn this off. <laughs> that is enough for me. Do you, do you ever get that? Because we've got uh, one of our regulars, Utah Smith, can't stand jittering in horror films. I oh, yeah. always feel uncomfortable when there's like, I think that's why I'm so drawn to werewolves because of the sort of back jointed knee thing. What about um, anything for you that in a fil- horror film that isn't maybe scary in itself, but you see it and it puts you on edge and you think, oh, right. Uh, I, I, I've never managed to get over the inevitability of like um, horror films that use mirrors. Whenever anyone watches, looks in a mirror, I just cannot. <laughs> I don't know what it is about mirrors. Like, even though I know what's coming, I know that something's <laughs> going to happen. I, I just, they just properly freak me out. Uh, but yeah, I can't really think of any specific other odd little things. Um, although I do remember the, weirdly, the bit, the only part of the human centipede that freaked me out right because you know the fact that someone got a trilogy out of it yeah but like obviously you know what human centipede is about and it's disgusting idea but none of that really bothered me it was the bit where it's where she first wakes up in like his basement and she's attached to a drip like in her arms or thing um like an intravenous drip and she freaks out and she like jumps out of the bed and like runs off but of course the drip is still in her arm and it and the need in the needle stuck in her arm and it, it like peels a strip of skin off her arm and mm. that was something i think it's because that was completely relatable i can't really relate to being like having my mouth sewn to someone's bum but i can relate to like a bit of skin being peeled off my arm um it's um it was always the bit as well that i remember when i first watched the exorcist which did freak me out when i watched it as a teenager but when she goes for the um x-rays and they inject you and there's like a jet of blood where they they because obviously they take the needle out to put the other one in and in that there's like it's like a and and it was like a straight jet of blood i was like oh that's really buzzing it's coming out of her neck and that always bothers me. Yeah, needles. And in Pulp Fiction as well, the injection with the blood mixes with the hair. Like, stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's just relatable stuff, isn't it? Yes. Um, yes. I like how we managed to get to the human centipede from talking about the Princess Bride then as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I love the Princess Bride. So, um, yeah, if you want to talk about that ever episode, count me in. What I will not talk about in future episodes is Renfield with Nicholas Ooh. Holt and Nicolas Cage that I watched, and it is not very good. Mm. Um, it's one of those films, much like the Winnie the Pooh the other day, where it's like almost like the premise is, the premise is obviously like, ah, oh, Nicolas Cage's Dracula, you know, kind of going, chewing the scenery, that'll be brilliant. And it's like, will it be brilliant, though, for 93 minutes? And the answer is no. So, yeah, Nicholas Holt plays Renfield, who is... Um, uh, so Dracula's subordinate gets his power from insects and looks after Dracula when he's having a kip. And it's, it's very, everyone's thrown on the English accents and it's set in modern times and it goes bonkers with a gore. This is a two minute trash in. And for the first 20, 25 minutes, I was sort of engaged because just the setting did carry it. And then, of course, it settles into him questioning his master, falling in love with Aquafina, who's just like a, a, a mouthy cop. And yeah. and then Nicolas Cage is it's like it's like he's in a zany film, but he's not. 
I don't know, Nicolas Cage, he's been in some great stuff recently, like Mandy and the Color Out of Space. And was it, um, no, I always mix it up with, was it just called Joe, in fact? Yeah, there's one called yeah. Joe. Like, so he can be understated and he can be overstated. Mm-hmm. It's all groovy. But in this, it's almost like everyone's, like, there are funny moments, but not enough to carry it for a whole. And by the time that, um, you know, halfway through when Dracula's like, I'm going to take over the world, and and then it's all rising up against him, and and it's all focused on the the human side of it, and the jokes go out of the way, or they get really lazy, and it's just more about silly, silly fighting. It's just, it's it may as well just be any other film, as yes. opposed to I'd rather if it was really schlocky and honed in on the fact that it was, you know, based on such a classic piece of literature. Um, but it just gets silly and too tongue-in-cheek and I, I i i was tired and the last 15 minutes i thought i'm just gonna turn this off i think uh, as i said before i I've, I've hit my and i paid for did i pay for this I may have paid a couple of quid but yeah. a couple of films recently i just think uh, i'm not that that last 20 minutes i'm it's not gonna it's not gonna <laughs> regain my attention so i may as well just knock it on the head so that yeah renfield mm. if you see it for free first half hour you might get a few laughs enough but it just it just crashes about a third of the way in and it just becomes silly and boring. Oh dear. Oh, I must, I wasn't particularly attracted to it. I got to say. When I love Nicholas Cage or oh, even the worst yeah. of the unbearable weight of massive talent. I enjoyed that, but mm. yeah, this was a bit of a dead in his recent, um, canon and ball. Wow. Um, so you, you rented, so it's not available for free anywhere. I think it was I will on, only uh, watch it for free. Hang on, I mean, I'm gonna, you know, look on Just Watch and see where I, I'm just just watch. Um, Renfield, Just Watch. This is um, where you found to find out you could have watched it for free. <laughs> Rent an empty. Oh, I went. Was it free? Best brush product? Was it oh, one ninety nine on Amazon? I paid for it. Oh, that's okay. okay. So yeah, I I probably lost about forty pence worth. Well, that's fine. Um. Okay. I'm there. I'm sitting here now and I can't think of any anything about it that made me laugh or okay. like there's some sort of like witty repartee, but it's already disappeared from my mind and I watched it less than a week ago. Jeez. Okay. That's impressive. Um, I let me talk a little bit about a film called Possession. Have you seen this? I will have to do a little bit of research. This is on Prime. It's from 1981. It's a horror drama from a name I'm going to mispronounce, Andre Zilavsky and Andre the Giant. <laughs> Sam Neill said it's the hardest film he's ever done for reasons that do become apparent. Oh, this so, is a film that is all. Oh, oh, I know the film you're talking about and I've always fancied it, but I've never watched it. So I'm okay. excited about this. Yeah. So this is set in the shadow of the Berlin Wall and Sam Neill plays a businessman whose marriage with Isabel Ajani is falling apart. She's been cheating on him and now she wants a divorce. It is all within the opening like three minutes. Uh, he goes completely nuts and starts lashing out, slapping her around and stuff. And then she goes crazy. Uh, everyone goes crazy. And it's a complete circus of histrionics. Anyway, she ends up moving into this rundown apartment and there's a horrendous monster in the wall. And meanwhile, he's trying to put his life back together, all the while keeping tabs on her uh, as she starts feeding men to the monster in her wall. Uh, mm. That's about all I can say about it. Um, but it's a very strange movie. It's got this like 
naturalistic lighting and locations combined with very formal camera work and yet very melodramatic acting styles and it creates a genuinely dreamlike atmosphere and obviously the decision to shoot a film about a violent separation around the berlin wall is pretty obvious metaphor but like the cold sterile location really adds to the dread and paranoia in it and it's a totally deranged film like ostensibly it's concerned with like adult issues of fidelity and monogamy and self-harm and indeed interpersonal possession but it's also utterly ridiculous and the character's behavior bears no resemblance to actual human beings at all <laughs> you can almost see i could see the influence so like everything about it is a metaphor then like literally yeah, even... yeah pretty much and i could see the influence on lars von trier's antichrist in terms of this mutually abusive relationship not to mention the selfishness and neglect of their child and obviously the child's name is bob um but in one there's one scene where it's got some of the worst drunk acting i've ever seen like the guy is meant to be pissed and he's he's almost dancing flailing his arms around and bouncing off the walls and yet he's able to speak entirely lucidly makes no sense and there's this really strange homoerotic element to the film like the men with whom sam sam's character makes contact they all seem to hit on him and i couldn't quite work out why and i (laughs) like regardless of their actual sexuality and i wonder if it's because it is a dream movie and like sam neill's character is seeing the world through a kind of psychosexual lens like every interaction has to have this sexual underpinning is possible but it could just be a weird element to it but I did. I, I enjoyed the sheer derangement of the film. I, I like the OTT acting. I liked um, the introduction of this phallic horror movie creature halfway through the dreamlike lighting camera work, the sheer unpredictability of everything, the black humor, heavy handed symbolism or that, that cold 80s Soviet atmosphere. I can see why the producers originally hacked half an hour from the film, because because the marital breakdown stuff is actually the least interesting part. And it's too removed from realism to be relatable because the whole movie is unconvincing. So I found the outright horror elements work better and because I just prefer horror. It's definitely not for everyone and it's possibly not for anyone really. But you have to admire the commitment of everyone involved. Like Sam Neill just really goes through the ringer. He goes through the full gamut in this movie. It's not a scary horror movie, but it is impressively dismal and cynical and bonkers and in terms of like off the wall water weirdness i put this in the same category as something like phantasm or possibly della morte <clears throat> della more otherwise known as cemetery man although i think it could be a little bit too cold and cerebral uh, and long for a, a halloween movie marathon but it's definitely worth a watch if, uh, it's utterly unpredictable just oh, I'll mention that at the end actually. Um, with um, I'm just thinking about Sam Neill because mm-hmm. obviously this I'm I'm a big fan of Sam. Uh, maybe I love him. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, to say the love and hate. But yeah, just thinking Omen Three, Possession. Then mm-hmm. uh, uh, he I'm just skipping through the ones I kind of um, and then you've got uh, In the Mouth of Madness. And uh, is it is secretly a horror icon? Yeah, he's really good at like being like a normal bloke who just completely loses his 
his marbles. Oh, and of course, uh, Event Horizon. Yes. Um, where he's just every now and again does these does these films where he just com- he's completely and totally true, actually, bonkers, yeah. and he he's really good at it. He is really really good at it. I think it's something to do with his. <clears throat> I think it's because he looks so ordinary, and yet he's got this wild. His eyes can go wild, can't they? Yeah. But, he looks yeah. ordinary, and yes, he's so incredibly handsome as well. He is. He's very sexy in this film. Although it, it, he needs another thirty years on him before he really is peak. Is he um? Is this a body horror film? Uh, not really. It's more of like it's more of like a, a deranged like marital drama mixed with just a creature feature. I think it's like incredibly violent, or like more psychosexual horror. I suppose it is like yeah, this kind of depraved sexuality running through everything. I'm sure that you could. You know, you could write a bloody dissertation on this film and look at all the symbolism and stuff. Um, but yes, it's like it just feels like grubby, but in like quite an, uh, just an interesting, disturbing way. Um, I, I didn't realize this. That um, I was just looking at Sam Neill now, and I thought I'd wait till the end of the review to talk about it. Is I didn't realize he had blood cancer. Really? Now. Yeah. Yeah, it says um, he's been undergoing chemotherapy since March 2022 after being diagnosed with stage three angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, a type of blood cancer, following swollen glands were first noticed during publicity for Jurassic Park Dominion. Cancer is in remission, but he will require monthly chemotherapy for the rest of his life. Crikey. Yeah. Don't leave us, Sam. So, no, you. please, Sam. He does not look 76. What a man. 76 years old. What? And I, I would have him with me. <laughs> For the rest of my life. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that was an interesting film because I think Sam Neill is, I mean, hopefully not for another 20 years. We'd have to, I'd happily go through a load of like Sam films that have passed me by because he is, He's just he's such a such a screen presence and he's just been in so many different films. It's funny actually thinking about it, like I love him from like Event Horizon stuff, but that Jurassic Park is his biggest film when he's and of course, um oh, what's that amazing film? Um Hunt for the Dead. Wilder People. Oh right, okay. That's good to say Dead Calm. <laughs> oh it's Uncle Hector, you can call him Hick. No he can't. Um <laughs> what a line. What a line, Sam. Um I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not that one. This is a TMT, a two-minute trash room, because you've already covered this. Um, on this the, is on the, the, the reboot. Yeah, the 2022 one. reboot. And you've covered it already, but I just have to... I just... I, you've, a few things that you didn't... Key things you didn't bring up. But it's just astonishing, right? So, like I said... Uh, we should think if any of the, the listeners can think of a way we can keep track of the films we cover in each episode or whatever, let me know. I mean, I, Rupert does nothing. He's so lazy and I do all the admins. So but it would be nice to know when we talk about films in previous episodes, we can refer people back. So email us at the men who talk at Outlook.com if you have any ideas. But this film. So, yeah, just really. I think the idea would probably be for us to fucking do it ourselves. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I don't like that. It's not be unreasonable. <laughs> I don't like those words in that order. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is this is a follow-on from the initial film. So this is 50 years after the initial uh, movie in 1973. Mm. 
and 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 it's a so yeah the basic overarching plot is a load of young go-getting entrepreneurs go to the this ghost town where they're gonna try and sell it to investors to do it up and knock up a load of restaurants and kind of bring the ghost town back as like a, a, a cool sort of second city vibe i guess um <laughs> and then leatherface sorry <coughs> She did some heroin and a leather face turns up and then just starts killing people. But right? that's not important. You've covered it before. But the, what, there were a few things in this film that made me think, pardon? Um, so at the, at the start of this film, um, these people, you, you see like a load of like young, a group of young people going to this town and they keep on saying we have to get there before the bus so we can like clean the town up sort of thing. Um and of course, their car breaks down or they get lost or something. And they turn up at the same time as this busload of investors. And they turn up at this ghost town, right? There's nothing there. It's all like ruined buildings. And I instantly thought, surely this would be one of those situations where you would turn up months. You would buy the town. You'd buy the property. You would turn up months ahead of time, spend yeah. all that time investing in it. So when they turn up, it's kind of like, oh, wow, ready? this is all that I can see. It's ready to, to, to buy and get going. So that seemed like a massive mistake because uh, and also it would have made the film better because it would have been more kind of haunted and lonely as opposed to just having a mm. busload of drunken revelers throughout it um speaking of that busload of drunken revelers when there's a scene in this film where leatherface gets on this modern like sort of it's like a chrome almost like a band tour bus with all these like millionaires on there drinking and getting battered. And he's on there with a chainsaw. And when he gets on the road with the chainsaw and they all start screaming, I, I kind of thought, oh, this is going to be really unpleasant because a chainsaw is so visceral and destructive. And the fact he's swinging it around in enclosed space full of people is actually quite buzzing. It's like a horrible thought, like you can't yeah. get away from it, can you, if someone comes to you with a chainsaw on a bus. But the film is so flat and bland and plastic that and it's filmed in such a way like outside the bus and, and filmed so kind of badly and with this sort of sheen that and CG blood that you don't you don't get a sense of destruction. You don't get a yeah. sense of like, you know, people cowering and putting their hands up. And it's just it's just not visceral, is it? It's not visceral enough and it's not raw enough. And and I was that was when I know oh this is not gonna be good like if if they can't get that right which is like a real selling point in a horror film like a really nasty core sequence what what chances the rest of the film got um, and there's even a bit where the the two main characters I think they're sisters or ones like yeah sisters um, he is tearing through tearing through this like thin cubicle door and they try as he's coming through the chainsaw they're trying to in like smushed up in this portaloo trying to open the roof and pull each other out and it should be a really tense scene but again it's filmed with such a lack of skill that yep. you it just there's no sense of any tension it's just you're just watching stuff happening um another thing is that david blue garcia and and the, and the writers of this film have clearly clearly had watched Halloween or got hold of the Halloween yeah. reboot and thought, ah, oh, like they bring him back, like at a character from the original, yeah. an older woman kind of, you know, ripping apart the whole sexism thing. Again, like this, this strong alpha woman to come back and kick ass a la Jamie Lee Curtis. But Marilyn just, Burns is no Jamie Lee Curtis, is she? Just in a really lazy way. And um, yeah, so she literally turns up and, there's a scene where she turns up, she's got a shotgun and it's one of those, I don't know if it's a pump action, one of those, like the only ones that like Arnie had and turn it to, no, it's a pump action. Okay. 
And she is, Leatherface is in an alleyway, like with a load of bins. And she has got a shotgun and she's pointing it down the alleyway. And he is about 60 feet away from her. And he runs at her, admittedly waving a chainsaw around. And she fires about five or six shells at him. Bear in mind, she's like a trained, hardened, like, ranger now, apparently. Mm. And he manages to deflect every single pellet <laughs> by swinging a chainsaw around. And then he just gets her. And, and then, so she gets thrown into some bins, a lot of bins in this film. And one of the girls comes over and they, and Leatherface is distracted. And they're going to, the two girls are just going to escape. They're going to literally get in a car that's right there and go. And she says to them, don't, don't run. He'll never stop hunting you. And I actually, I actually frowned and put my chin in my hands and cast my mind back to the events of the last 50 years, which explicitly states in the film that Leatherface, after that killing spree, went effectively to a mental hospital, like in this quiet, sleepy town, and did nothing for half a century apart from look after an old woman. And she was the one who got obsessed with him yeah. and, and actually hunted him. And, and even though she's a policeman, was unable to find him, even though he lived down the road. <laughs> and was the only man over six foot tall who's a mute in her hometown. Not the best detective. And and then I'm just going to spoil it. The ending. <coughs> there's, a, there's a moment in this film where they, the events take place, whatever they may be. And mm. the two girls, the sisters who are the survivors, get in, the, in this car and it's on cruise control, autopilot, and they say, you know, take us home. And one of them says a joke like, oh, actually, you've, you know, they're both like covered in blood and completely distressed and lost everyone. And one of them says to the other one, oh, do you know what? Thinking about it, I might actually live here. And they both start laughing. And that laughter just deteriorates into like crying, like just panicked crying and hugging each other because of what's happened. And I mm. thought if the car drives off and that's the last thing you see, that's quite cool. Like they've just like completely yeah. broken down to it. But no, of course, there's a, there's a sort of silly not post credits, but a, a sequence that just completely ruins even that. <laughs> and I just thought, what a bloody waste of a, of a re- I'd say that Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? It probably had like what one, the initial film was good. Yeah. And I've never seen it, not fairness. And then it's just a load of tosh, isn't it? Basically. Yes. Like the original is very raw and, um, and quite subversive in, in some ways. Uh, and, really well made and it's got some cool characters and a really really disturbing like, final sequence and and then you got Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 which is also directed by Tobe Hooper which is completely different and it's almost like a kind of uh slapstick comedy like it's but and it's got Dennis Hopper who's oh, so much coke and um I kind of admire the fact that it went such a different direction. The second one, it's not. It's a, it's very it's a romantic comedy, isn't it? Starring Sean Penn. <laughs> well, it might as well be. It's that different. Like it's so different in tone. Like it's so jokey and not, not raw at all. But I kind of like that about it. It's kind of a bit mental. Um, and yet, yeah. And it, everything since has been completely worthless as, as far as I can see. I mean, they tried to remake it a few times and they do one called Leatherface. 
That was it. Oh, that's a, I probably I think I've seen this one with Matthew McConaughey in it. I mean, I'm too that busy was, watching that was three. I think I'm too busy watching Tobe Hooper's film about a dodgy washing machine anyway, so I don't really care about any of these. What was the Mangler? I'm going to guess '93. Um, yeah, the, yeah, 2017 film. Did you ever see the Mangler? Of course, it's a no. Stephen King. Just basically about a dodgy washing machine. Someone's bought a bloody Aniston. And then it's, is it Aniston? Goes on and on, whatever that brand was. Aniston goes on and on in that advert. which is Ar- Ariston. Ariston, that's the one. And, Ariston. Um, but the Ariston advert is one of the greatest adverts ever made because, of course, it has the Ariston and on and on, but it's to the uh, music from the Game Boy version of Robocop, which is amazing. That music is fantastic. The no fact that they use that music. Like not beefed up at all, just the original music. Um, oh, by the way, um, you, you, I totally forgot to mention this. A little bit of um, the kind of now, unfortunately, <laughs> half-retired state of play. But um, you talking about Carrie was earlier on. Um, I've been playing a game recently. Well, I finished it. Called the Last Aura Crew, and it's really bizarre because the main character sounds like Carrie. He's supposed to be this sort of futuristic cyberpunk hero, mm. but he just sounds like Carrie was and the Princess Bride. And it's it's a Czech game, and the, there's a really dry British humour in it, which is what jogged my memory when you mentioned that about the Princess Bride. And there's a there's a line in the in the in the film that really really tickled me, and it's it's like a like a Dark Souls kind of Souls like game, mm. and you go to visit this like horrible mutated rat queen and in, in her kingdom, and she hates humans, but she talks in like sort of guttural bursts. Like human, but all die. And then you, you, you have this conversation with her where she basically says she despises your race and she won't stop until you're all dead. And then you go to the end of this bridge and then someone says to you, how did the meeting go? And then your character says, well, it didn't go well. She despises me almost as she despises proper grammar. And, and I thought, what a brilliant line. And, and, in, and, and that was when I knew that this small Prague game that was voted the seventh worst game of 2022 by Metacritic is better than Starfield. <laughs> I was waiting for you to mention Starfield. Uh, so yeah, to, that so should be it should be a, a staple part of this podcast from now on. That something <laughs> even, you mention in the podcast each week has to be better than Starfield, even if it's a movie, it's not a game. Yeah. Um, Tobe Hooper, yes, I I have I have seen Life Force by him um from 1985 which is like just pretty bonkers uh and it's just it's one of these kind of like alien comes to earth in the form of a hot woman who just never puts any clothes on essentially it's species for the 80s but um yeah that was not great but it's got some cool makeup effects in it can you do me a favor can you the mangler i was wrong it's 1995 ted levine new line cinema can you can you watch that for me (laughs) you want me to do your favor yeah sure it's is a horror movie so therefore it's it's october yeah Yeah, okay just watch the mangler i'll buy a few a dvd if it's not a just watch i'll treat you it's got to be something free it is nowhere for free but but it is there Oh, because there are some on, films which are not. It is one ninety nine on Google Play, one ninety nine on YouTube, and three fifty on Amazon. By the way, the other day, uh, well, I rhymed songwriter, write it down. 
I tried to watch something on YouTube because it was two quid cheaper than Amazon, and I couldn't work out how to buy films on on um, YouTube, even though I'm a premium subscriber. I couldn't I couldn't do it, so I had to pay more. It's poorly organized because, of course, you just search for films as you would any other video. So yeah, and then finding it says, the proper you're like, thing. Oh, do you want to watch the trailer? And you're like, no, I, w- I want to pay no, for no, it. I want to give you let money. Let me to watch. give you money. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but it's still better than Paramount Plus. Um. Right. Where are we now? Um, it's you, you. I just talked about Texas. So, yeah, it's Texas with Charlene Spiteri. Um, <laughs> wow. And yeah, so it's your turn. Um, OK, let me talk about Licorice Pizza, which is um, Paul Thomas. This is on Prime. Paul Thomas Anderson's romantic comedy drama from 2021, which cost quite a lot. About is it 2021? Million. I thought that yeah. was brand new. Bloody hell, I'm being the times. Mm. Flop pretty hard. I think ah. a lot of the budget went on recreating 70s California because the production design is incredible. Like, it's easily the equal of, like, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, say. Uh, and Paul Thomas Anderson appears to be shooting on film, which is awesome. Licorice Pizza itself refers to an L.A. record store from the 60s, but beyond that, like, it seems irrelevant to this film other than being a cool title. This is a... 1970s set coming of age story with a very loose plot and lots of oddball characters oh my god it's, i'm gonna take my headphones off if this is like garden state <laughs> it's not like it's not quite like that it's oh. well i i would i'm not gonna say it's like days to confuse the richard linklater film because that's got a loose plot and lots of oddball characters but paul thomas anderson's too contrarian and hip to make a movie that breezy and accessible it stars Cooper Hoffman, who's son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, as this 15-year-old entrepreneur. He's trying to build a waterbed business, amongst other ventures, with his friends. He's infatuated with a 25-year-old lady called Alana, this fiery Jewish lady who takes a possibly romantic infatuation with him in return. And this loose and practiced story concerns these two kind of orbiting each other whilst they negotiate the world of small business, family, sex, childhood, etc. Except, of course, Alana is not a child and Gary is not an adult. In fact, the actors are indeed 12 years apart. Hmm. And I'm not sure what Paul Thomas Anderson is getting at here because Gary, the 15-year-old, is mature beyond his years and the lady, who's 25, she does have the mentality of a teenager so what I, I why make them 10 years apart? And, and, you know, there's one point where she literally says, is it weird that I hang out with this 15 year old and his friends? But it never actually the film never actually establishes the purpose of having that dynamic in there. It just seems irrelevant to me. Um, I guess it's about her needing to grow up and him needing to slow down, maybe. But I one might suggest switching the genders and considering how creepy that would be. But. Anyway, there's another controversy around this film, which I was less bothered about, which is uh, this middle-aged white guy who owns a Japanese restaurant who constantly speaks to his Japanese wife and staff, not in Japanese, but he he talks to them in English with an exaggerated Japanese accent, which I found quite funny um, because I don't see a problem with like portraying grotesque racism on film if it says something about the period. So, but... Yeah, other than that, I found that the real problems of the film are narrative. Like, um, this is like 
there's a scene which kind of highlighted it for me, which is where it's quite a tense scene where Alana has just reversed this truck down a hill, right? And in the immediate aftermath, and it's quite like a, a you know an action-based sequence. In the immediate aftermath, like Gary, the kid, is, is thrilled and relieved, right? But meanwhile, she just sits on the pavement in silence, and I, I had no idea why. Why was she doing that, or what she may be thinking? And then her character looks at this political campaign poster on the wall and just suddenly decides to volunteer on some random guy's campaign. And now it's like 30 minutes from the end of the movie and the film has introduced a bunch of new characters and veered into a totally different, unrelated chapter. And I guess, like, both main characters are meant to be impulsive, um, but yet, yet they seem incapable of acting on the impulse of just having it off with each other. But then I suppose... Is it really desirable to see a grown woman committing statutory rape on a minor? I'm not sure. But anyway, the performances are good, especially Cooper Hoffman. It's literally his first film, possibly nepotism, but he is perfect for the role. He has this kind of blind optimism and confidence of youth, but he's also got this petty jealousy and naivety. And, but I did pulled, think... Sorry, Paul Thomas Anderson must have knocked on his door, Cooper Anderson's door, and sat down and like drummed his fingers on the table and said, well making a movie usually cast your dad but your dad's dead <laughs> uh, i was thinking <laughs> yeah. um he does look a lot like him it's, it's quite bizarre um does he have that same drawl he had a wonderful drawl didn't he philip yeah he's got a, i don't know it's his look like a, a dryness in the voice let me have a look he's at him actually what's kind his of schlubby look about him but it's just very natural he just seems very just opening Cooper Hoffman. Oh yeah, yeah. See what I mean? Yeah, I just think there's a bit of a Tarantino with the with uh, this film is a like a lack of editorial rigor, like to do with the script and just to do with the pacing. Scenes gone too long. Some digressions are just tedious. There's this whole Bradley Cooper um, cameo, which just goes on and on. It's just completely unfunny, uh, which is interesting because. He, of course, was in a really tedious cameo in Dungeons and Dragons as well earlier this year. Um, I'm also just not sure that Paul Thomas Anderson is very funny. Like Inherent Vice's funniest moments are in the trailer and you're just waiting for the next virtuoso tracking shot to finish so you can get back to the character comedy. Like, I think There Will Be Blood is a funny movie because of the insane hubris of his horrible main character, not because it's a comedy script as such. And it's weird to see how many critics have fawned over Licorice Pizza as some kind of joyous summer rom-com. Because to me, it just seemed really dark. I guess a tapestry of opportunism bordering on abuse, like this world of jaded celebrities and cutthroat businessmen and bitterly frustrated youth against the backdrop of casual misogyny and racism. And, And that's fine if that's what he wants to portray. But it does cast a heavy shadow across the film and it makes like the fairy tale ending seem a bit false. I think it's a very well made film, technically. And it's original enough to keep me interested in Paul Thomas Anderson, but I don't think I'd ever watch it again. Uh, with with Paul Thomas Anderson, not, not to be confused with W.S. Anderson. He, <laughs> or indeed he, he, Paul. Yeah, it's, yeah. 
no, that was exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <I'm> thinking, <laughs> who's that other guy? Oh, yeah, it's Paul W.S. Anderson, the you're Resident of, Evil guy. You're thinking of Pamela Anderson and your laminated magazines and scrapbooks. <laughs> um, all with the asses cut out in, in honour of Tinto Brass. Um, with the windows cut out. <laughs> yeah, I always thought of, yes. of um, what's his name? Um, Oh, you've got me confused now, Paul Douglas Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, as, as this kind of auteur. And people talk about him in this, at the same level of Christopher Nolan, which which is, quite frankly, a level of, of cinema that I, I personally don't operate at. And I just don't tend to gravitate towards those films. Unless you were chatting in and you were just this kind of like bloody Southamptonite static just going through my ears. I was just looking at his, his, his oeuvre. oeuvre. And um, I'm just looking at this. You've got Heartache, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch, Drug, Love, There Will Be Blood, The Master, Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread, and Licorice Pizza. Both of us disliked Inherent Vice. I found it really boring. It gave me seven psychopath vibes in that I felt like I was watching a film was trying to convince me how cool it was. And yeah. it's, what, it's one of my least favorite feelings. The Master I didn't watch because everyone loved it and, and said, oh, it's a master of cinematography. And I, th- it's, you know, and I thought, well, it's just not going to appeal to me, really. It's there Will Be Blood, The Master. I probably will watch it at some point. I think I've seen a bit of it somehow. There Will Be Blood, I really enjoyed. It's just such a just sweaty, nasty film. Um, but my point is, right, that I think out of all these films, I really like Boogie Nights. I've, I think Hard Eight is my favourite film because it's little. And it's, again, it, it's such a cyclical conversation because it it's Philip Baker Hall getting a starring role and just showing that he's amazing. And then you've got John C. Riley in it as well. Um, That's all you need, really, isn't it? I've met, do you know what? I, any, I will take any chance I get to talk about Hard Eight because it's such a good film. Um, yeah, I've never I, seen Hard Eight. Oh, please do. That, so your homework, apart from the, the Mangler, um, <laughs> the let me have a little look. Hard Eight. Just Watch is really getting some ad revenue from me today. Uh, <laughs> hard Eight. Uh, where is it? It is for free. It is nowhere, but you can watch it for two fifty on Google Play, okay. or YouTube, or Microsoft. What? What's that? Uh, well, there is the Xbox thing. The trouble oh, okay. with buying watching films on Xbox, uh, buying films on Xbox specifically, is that in the UK you can only watch them on Xbox. So you have to. It's not like you can have an app on your phone or something. You just you have to watch it on Xbox. It says crap. Um, right. Yes, so Paul Thomas Anderson, yeah, I like, I've seen a good few of his films. And I do, I have trust in him. And certainly Licorice Pizza is significantly better than Inherent Vice. Mm. But just not up there with, like, the best, like, There Will Be Blood and um, The Master, I wouldn't say. I don't know. When I think of coming-of-age films in it, and of any sort, unless it's a blazing horror from the 80s, I just imagine there's going to be a sequence where they're in an open top convertible and someone throws a hat in the air and it freeze frames and someone says, little did we know how much your lives would change that summer. <laughs> I just, I just, I'm not watching it in my head. That's all. It never, it never stoops to that level of sentimentality. Does anyone shout into a quarry to release the inner turmoil? No, it's not Garden State. It's not really a film then, is it? I mean, if you want to see someone shouting into a quarry or, or actually not even shouting into a quarry, looking at, into a quarry through um through a telescope why not watch lone wolf mcquade and <laughs> smack it on the head <laughs> you don't bother with this licorice pizza nonsense um 
so yeah, then that's, that's cool. I enjoyed that conversation about um, whichever Anderson that was, but watch Hard Eight. Um, okay. I watched. I went through a phase, right? So I I had a little bit of free time, and I've been chipping away through the the many many DVDs that our beautiful listeners have given to me. Oh my God, the quality of these DVDs, Rupert. Oh my God. Um, so I watched a few cockies basically because I. <laughs> I just grab. I've literally. I, I look at them. Like when I sit there and I pull the stack out from under my under my 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 entertainment bureau, I look at them and I just think, it's such despair. Just oh my god, these all look so bad. So I just grab the top one and I put it on and just thought, whatever this is, I'm watching it. And it was Double Threat, starring <laughs> Andrew Stevens, um, who was in like Body Chemistry Four and stuff with Shannon Tweed. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a cocky. This is an erotic thriller from the nineties and. It is. Uh, I've talked. To, we talked to Laszlo about this, but the amount of times that the boom drops into shot. Apparently, admittedly, it's the wrong aspect ratio, but still, it doesn't. It's not a great look. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, Double Threat. This is probably one of the laziest films I've ever seen because it stars. It starts off, and there's a sequence where uh, Andrew Stevens, with his hair swept back, comes in. His wife confronts him about having an affair. Uh, and says you are actually going to use me to steal my money and run away with this young girl and he says don't be silly she shoots him and frames him and then we realize that what's actually happening is this is a film within a film and we're with the director and the financier watching it in a private screening and it finishes and the and the director says so what do you think and of course the director of the film is like you know the director of this film because it's so meta and it's the only funny exchange in the film and the 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 guy who's producing it smoking a big fat cigar it clearly just wants to see more tits in this film and he's like yeah it was it was it was great but it just needs a little you know little and uh the director's like what what, what do you mean he's like just needs a little tits little little something and the like so and he's like grabbing his notes he's like well, so what, what do you want what are you after and he's like oh, just needs a little bit p- pizzazz a little and it goes on for a little while and eventually he's like just tits just guess <laughs> and that was quite funny but um so but then it's just downhill from there because you know when you're watching a film and you realize it's you re you're watching a 90s erotic thriller and you realize you realize it's a 90s erotic thriller, if that makes sense. You realize that it's the kind of film that you'd watched as a 14-year-old, constantly teasing a semi until someone got their boobs out, and then you, and then you do your business, you turn it off. And, um, of course, now, uh, approaching 40, it's like, I, that bizarrely, that doesn't appeal to me anymore. So what you're left with is a lot of, like, really flat melodrama and just people having arguments like it's EastEnders, and then, but just wearing negligee, and then slamming the door and then enigmatically lighting a cigarette and looking wistful out of a window. And it's like, oh, that's not mm. enough to keep my attention. Um, and so, yeah, this and, and this film is, it's incredibly lazy because, of course, what happens is the scenes in the film that they're acting are just reflected in real life. And I am assuming the writer thought this would be quite a clever little meta thing, but what it boils down to is the fact that he's actually just written half a film and doubled it. So it's actually quite a clever move on, in terms of his, his actual, the effort he's put in. Um, but there are scenes in, in the film that they're filming, that the actors in the film, the words they're saying, and then they finish it. And then, of course, this actual exact situation is happening in real life. And they're just repeating lines of dialogue from the film they're in and not noticing it. 
And at the end of it, then Richard Lynch turns up, who mm. was obviously in Scanner Cop. He, he of the waxy man. visage, yes. He's waxy in this as well. It looks like, kind of looks like um, Rick Mail. If mm-hmm. Rick, Rick Mail was the bloke who has a rough time in Robocop. And, okay. And, and at the end of this film, I, I, and I know this happens a lot with these films, where the, you know, there's like a twist, and then there's another twist, and then yes, there's another twist, but they're all just tedious and just in, in, involve people saying, well, actually, she was my daughter. And then there's, mm. a, there's a, key, a keening violin, and then someone will say, she was your daughter. Well, the one who died was my sister. And it's like, what? That doesn't mean anything to anyone. <laughs> yeah, no one cares. Yes. So, um, yeah, this was just, um, I was, when this came on, I started watching it. I thought, I wonder if, you know, like you watch action films and there's. Yes, I do. Yeah, like PM Entertainment, you come across gold, you come, you watch a lot of bad ones, you watch a lot of good ones, you come across some hidden gems. But the fact that it's an action film inherently keeps you locked in because it's like a you know of course when you're watching a cocky like a soft cocky from the 90s there's because that that initial sexual thrust doesn't exist anymore because everyone's there's so much vaseline on the lens and everything everything is 80s even though this is like mid 90s everything was like it was seducing her in rooms and there's like peach doilies everywhere an awful flammable bed linen and then all bloody terrible rugs you're like this is this the 90s um so there's nothing there. It's just bad acting and like really soft. It's it's basically like you know Coronation Street with bums. So it yeah this was this was a struggle. Not as much of a struggle as the other films I'm going to talk about after you've talked though. <laughs> Did um but you made it through to the end? Yeah. So it's a better film than Renfield then. It, well, I suppose if if that is your criteria, then yes, yes, yes it is. Then yes, and, it is. Also, Andrew Stevens has turned into a really handsome man who would probably be in our bar. Really? Mm, yeah. Should I look him up on the internet? I don't. Yeah, have a look. Andrew Stevens. Eric name. I know, yeah. It could be hard to. Andrew Stevens, American actor. Oh, God, these are blurry images. You look at the first yeah. one on IMDb. Oh, yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. Like, he just, he looks generic back in the day, but he's like grown into his looks yeah okay i've got a tiny bit shiny and waxy in that one okay okay um <laughs> i don't believe but not as much is, as richard his, Lynch. his hair is not his own i believe in some of these dishes <laughs> his hair um, may have once been adorned that of a doll so um, if you wanted to watch double threat where would you have to go is it a charity shop it's a charity shop in Cardiff, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Specific. Um, I paid for the next one, and I'm so glad I did. Uh, it's a film called The Hidden, right? Mm-hmm. From 1987. Uh, and I didn't really know anything about it before. It's just I can't remember. I saw it recommended somewhere, but it's an LA set sci-fi cop thriller, um, starring um, Michael Nauri or Nuri. A uh, guy from Flashdance, anyway, he plays a cop who is paired with a rookie FBI agent, played by Carl McLaughlin, to track down a serial killer. And the twist is the 
So the killer is in fact a slug-like alien which enters its victim's body and takes control of it. I um, thought I'm just looking at this. Sorry, I'm just interrupting. Yeah. I, I, I typed in the hidden and it came up, and I swear to God, I just assumed that on that poster with hidden and it's like a blue cover. Yeah. I thought that was Doug Hutchison. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering which which post you're looking at. Oh no, it is. Posts... It's, sorry, no, it, it's Edda Ross. The guy from oh, yeah, Edda Ross, yeah, yeah. Who yeah. I was confused on. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay, that's cool. Um, but yes, um, it's a, it's such a really cool poster actually. If it's the one I'm thinking of. Um, but yes, it. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of. Um, there's a further twist later on, which comes as no surprise, but it gives the film a nice balance and, and this internal narrative solidity. Um, it is basically. A, a non-sexual species really with a bit of terminator and possibly even terminator 2 thrown in very solid sounds, well sounds amazing yeah Chris <laughs> in it as well good yeah it's 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 well acted oddly compelling given the absurd premise and carl mclaughlin is perfectly cast as this stone cold fbi agent with a tragic past like this is pre twin peaks of course um so he's even more youthful of visage um it leans heavily away from its horror elements and actually oh, okay. pretty much from its sci-fi elements. It's very much a cop action thriller, which is fine. It would have been cool to see a few more gory body horror effects, but we can't have everything. It's very intense and has some impressive car chases and stunts. Um, and it's probably the only movie where you're going to see Carl McLaughlin wielding a flamethrower. So it is unique <laughs> in that sense. And, I, I like how the alien is like limited by the quality of the body it inhabits. So like there's one bit where it tries to run away with this inside this older guy and he just starts having heart palpitations on the way. So it's quite amusing. And it's got a, a brilliant ending, which is sort of tender and creepily ambiguous at the same time. And yeah, I suppose when you think about like a kind of horror ish movie, but it's really more of a cop thriller, I suppose. It, it more in the ballpark of like the Maniac Cop sequels or something. It's more. This sounds fantastic. Oh yeah, I really like it. I I wish it did lean a bit more into the horror sci-fi stuff. You can imagine if John Carpenter, John Carpenter had his hands on it, it, w- it would have been a classic. But it it's more just hidden gem status, so it's definitely worth watch if you can track it down. It is a hidden gem. It's called the hidden. The- where did you watch that? Because I want to watch this. I I think I purchased it actually. Because Cash it, money. It, yeah. Oh, digitally was it? Um, but um, yeah. I I, th- I can't remember where I saw it recommended. I just saw like you know like when you see these like full on like retrospective reviews on like bloody disgusting or something like that, and you, you just the person whoever's writing it, their kind of enthusiasm is so infectious. And it just makes the movie sound so amazing. You just think, right, I have to see it in any, by any means possible. And well, it is the, the last, worth it. By the way, it's the most expensive film we've talked about today because it's £3.9 anywhere online. But I'll pay yeah, that. £3.9. The, nine pence, so I'm getting the same vibes. You'll know this because you don't drink as much as me and your memory is probably better. What was that film that I sent you a link? And it was a, it was a F- Faze Brothers sent me a, a, a 10 second clip of a man. It was it was the. Oh, I know the one you're thinking of. You know the one I mean with uh, with with Lou Diamond Phillips where he rips a ceiling fan off and uses it as like a chain blade against people. What was that amazing film? What was it called? 
because I can't get the word scanner cop out of my head. It's not scanner cop. It's Ludo I'll find out for you while you talk about the next film and okay. definitely report back because it was that's such a good movie as well. I suppose next... I do like a, a horror cop thriller. I, I was going to say Dead Heat. That's a bit more of a comedy, I suppose. But again, I just love that kind of like mashup. <laughs> so perfect. I can't rest until I. You type in Lou Diamond Phillips, the first thing you see is picture him being arrested. What's he done now? Is he. Lou Diamond Phillips, what film was it? It was amazing, wasn't it? Um, like early 90s. Uh, why can't I see the name of this film? The First Power. The First Power. Yeah. That was it, yeah. Um, and then Demon Wind, which is about a man on a curry. But that was... What did he do? Why is there a picture when you type in Ludum? If I type my name into the into the internet and the first thing it was a picture, a mugshot, you think, all right, I haven't done well then. Um, no, he isn't. I don't know what that's about. Legal Troubles 2017. Bat- oh, yeah, battered in 2017. No, forgive him for that. Um... What was I going to talk about? I was going to talk about Raw Nerve, which is, um, you know, uh, earlier on I said I, I had that DVD and I just said I'm going to chuck it on and whatever comes on, I'm just going to watch. And it was Double Threat with Andrew Stevens. Well, yes. it, t- it t- turns out that DVD, if you turn it over, there's another film on it. <laughs> and that film is Raw Nerve, directed and directed, uh, directed and re- Directed and written by David A. Pryor, the same person who did Double Threat. Um, uh, but this stars Tracy Lords and Jan Michael Vincent. I say, I say, stars Jan Michael Vincent of Airwolf fame. Does he star in it, or am I in it longer than he is? It's hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> um, I'm going to breeze through this because there's just one aspect of this film I've been burning to talk about all week since watching it, and it's the ending. It is. <laughs> I might actually film it and put it on, on, on our Twitter channel for people to see. It is brilliant. So um, actually, let me just do a little, a tiny bit of research for a second, because I've got a feeling that this guy was, yeah, I'll talk about that later on. It doesn't matter. Um, So raw nerve. So it's, it, this is, this is actually, I don't want to say better than, this is leans more towards a thriller. Well, like the, the other one was just a cocky. This is more of like a thriller by the same director, obviously from mm. the same production house, probably Hollywood DVD, no, my luck. Um, so on Wikipedia, it says a series of grotesque murders plagues the city of Mobile, Alabama. But what happens is it's just you see like people just being shot with a shotgun. Like it's like a pair of twins going through like a hall of mirrors in a fun house and one of them just gets strangled and the other one just gets shot. And I thought, oh, this is looking like a golden lost 90s horror. Um, but oh, by the way, this is Raw Nerve 1991, not that one. If you're thinking about a 1999 film starring Mario Van Peebles, get that out of your mind straight away. Um, so, the, and then, so you see this, this person with a shotgun clad in leather shooting women, basically in different scenarios. And then it cuts to a racing car driver who uh, by the fact the fact he's a racing car driver has nothing to do with the film <laughs> and he's he's driving around this racetrack as he's wont to do and his uncle is like his mechanic and he has this vision of women being killed and he and he loses the race uh so he 
instantly goes to John Michael Vincent, who's a police uh, police officer, and says, "Oh, look, you need to start." And he starts describing these women and says, well, "You need to look for these women because I think they're dying." And then John Michael Vincent gets his notepad and pencil out, licks it, and says, "Tell me more." And he says, "Well, I have this vision," and then he slams the shut and says, "Yes." Not gonna, not gonna stand up in court too firmly, is it? <laughs> to Frank Boff, and then as he's leaving, uh, Sandal Bergman, who is a pretty woman, is a reporter and uh, says, "Oh, I, I, I want to hear more." And he says, oh, "Are you, are you gonna, are you doing this just because you're a reporter? And you're gonna make me out to look stupid in the papers, or do you actually want to know more?" And she's like, "No, no, I just, just want to know more. Nothing to do with my job as a reporter." She, she does, she does plausible. So, um, anyway, this is when the editing of the film really takes off because he goes out and he has a meeting with her. And when he realizes she is just wants a cheesy kind of National Enquirer-esque story out of him, he storms out. But he obviously fancies her. So he goes on mm. to his wife. And, and then the next thing we see is she goes to bed with his wife. And then the next thing we see is him with Sandal Bergman having sex. So right, okay. okay. So that was a leap there. <laughs> um, what an interesting editorial decision. They start having this affair, and he keeps having these visions, and this goes on. Women are getting killed, and suspicion is cast upon his uncle, who is played by Randall Tex Cobb, who you will know the second you see him. He kind of looks. Okay. He, he sort of looks like uh, looks like John C. Riley's ball bag, and he he's. So it, it becomes clear that, like, well, supposedly clear that the uncle, oh, that guy, yeah, the the uncle is the one who is going out on the kill, and the film leads to what you assume is the is the, the sort of climax where the he, he grabs this guy whose name's Jimmy, the one who's having the visions. The uncle uh, grabs Jimmy's sister and tries to flee the country with her. And you think he's just going to kill her. Obviously, he's taking it, saying, well, we're going to flee the country. You know, women are getting killed. We'll go somewhere together. And you're like, well, you're just going to kill her and have your way with her. And he gets on a rooftop. And the police, as they would, let Jimmy go out to this armed maniac, who's his uncle, who's a known serial killer, supposedly, and try to talk him down. And Jimmy says to him, look, you know, come come, come with me. And the uncle says, you, you, you don't know... You don't know what's going on, do you? You 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 think I'm killing all these women? And he's like, well, yeah. And then he swigs a beer and says, well, you know. And he just sort of does this sort of knowing laugh, and then then lines up as if he's going to drive off of this car park, or this roof of this car park, mm-hmm. into this busy street below, which he does. And the police choose not to shoot him dead, and then they actually say. You know, hold your fire, you know, let him do this. So they let the police let him drive off the top of a car park into really? New York. Yeah. Instead of just shooting him and like saving everyone's life. It's bizarre, bizarre choice. <laughs> and anyway, I better throw this in as well. That Jan Michael Vincent is Sandal Bergman's ex-husband, of course. Right. And he's always saying, I oh, don't trust that Jimmy. He's a tinker. And she's like, yeah, whatever. And then he goes back to sucking off Jimmy. And then, <laughs> so at the end of the film, it, that that ends. I thought, oh, that's the end of the film then, because uh, then the police say that we found the shotgun and all the all the 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 the, um, the gloves and the, all the clothing and balaclava in your uncle's car. So he's clearly the killer. Then it cuts to Sandal Bergman turning up, and 
Jimmy's who's living with his sister, his his sister makes a joke about, oh, I'll knock the door so you know when I'm coming back because she knows what's going to happen. Goes out to the cinema. But Jimmy's looking out the window and turns around and boom, it's actually him with a split personality, oh, which was never done in the 80s or 90s. Um, of course, his alter ego, he's named Billy. So it's mm. Billy and Jimmy like in Double Dragon, which was I enjoyed. Yeah. Then, and this is where the best sequence in cinema history happens, right? Okay. On that rooftop sequence, when the uncle drives off and the police just let him threaten <laughs> the lives of dozens of innocents instead of just shooting him dead, John Michael Vincent gives the nod to Sandal Bergman to like, okay, I'll, now that I know he's innocent, I'll let you, I'll give you my blessing to go with Jimmy, even though he's like a twat of an ex-husband. So that happens. In the, when the sequence then cuts and it's just and it's shot like you know with like a blue light coming through blinds across his face as he says mm-hmm. oh Jimmy's gone forever it's Billy now so he gets into a fight with Sandal Berg when he's trying to kill her like he's killed all these women and I guess the point where he has got it he's kneeling on his shoulders and he's holding a hammer above his head and he's laughing and he's going to just smash her face in with his hammer and would you credit it Rupert <laughs> would you credit it right John Michael Vincent, and he hasn't been alerted. John Michael Vincent just walks into his house holding his gun like it's a sandwich and he's popped on for lunch. So he like he just walks in and isn't saying hello, doesn't knock, wanders into this house where he wouldn't, wouldn't be. There's no need for him to be there. He's looking really blasé, turns to his left and like see, sees this and goes, oh, fucking hell, and shoots him dead. Boom, straight to credits. <laughs> and I thought, what a deus ex machina ending. Like he... There's no need for him to do that. Why would, if they weren't, if they weren't doing that, if he didn't have an alter ego and they were just watching telly and John Michael Vincent walked in, he would have said, why, what are you doing? Why have you just openly walked into my house? Why, why are you here? Why are you holding your gun as well? Out. What, what, what's happening? Um, it's such a lazy ending, but I had to watch it a couple of times because I thought, have I missed something here? Because I was restringing a guitar at the time. But no, just wanders in and saves the day. And then it just Amazing. smash gets the credit. Absolutely brilliant. So I enjoyed that. <laughs> it's called Raw Nerve. Yeah. And again, if you want to watch it, you'll have to buy Double Threat and turn it over. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay. Is it even worth looking on? Just, it, it, this sounds like it was more enjoyable than Double Threat. Was that not Yeah, it was. Okay. No, it was. It was. Okay. Um, but not good enough to actually watch. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just watch the last thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah. That was the only part where I really felt there was it was like you were truly enthralled. The last thirty seconds. Um, okay. I've got my. I'm come to my final film here, so I'll quickly. I've talk. I've got two, but I, it's basically one. Okay. What? Because you turned the disc over. Um. <laughs> um. I'll talk about Blue Steel, which is on Prime. Everything I've watched is on Prime. Blue Steel, Catherine Bigelow's 80s cop thriller, written with Eric Red, who has got quite good writing credits. He wrote The Hitcher and Near Dark. Um, and it stars Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays this rookie cop, who within the first five minutes is <laughs> on like a first day, she shoots the shit out of Tom Sizemore. Um, as he's robbing a supermarket and that 
his gun when he drops it obviously is taken by a very creepy guy like just pedestrian uh, played by ron silver who then goes completely full american psycho with that weapon so basically it's like oh no weapons found at the scene and now someone's going around killing people it's like he's on a campaign basically that ron silver is to make uh, jamie lee curtis's life a misery framing her gaslighting her stalking her well, like, a leaf, like a leaflet campaign <laughs> yeah. he, he uh she teams up with a partner played by yes clancy brown um who <laughs> believes in her um a lot of movies from this period sort of mid to late 80s start plausible and become increasingly ridiculous but this one takes it to a whole nother level like the decisions that jamie lee curtis makes towards the end of this film are quite staggering um at one point like she's hunting ron silver in central park right and but bear in mind that by this point she's desperate for people to believe her that you know she's not crazy and he is the bad guy so she goes into the night into central park rather than bringing clancy brown with her for backup and an eyewitness um she handcuffs him to the steering wheel and then goes off on her own to face this clearly psychotic man so basically ron silver is on a massive power trip and he's using manipulation and you, you get the sense he's trying to transform jamie lee curtis into this rageful killing machine that he believes she is uh which sets up some very contrived scenes where he's like quietly infiltrating her life and threatening her loved ones uh and the script isn't really sophisticated enough to set up a fun scenario where she is desperate destined to become the thing she despises uh, unfortunately it's really about a hot-headed rookie learning to get into the mind of a psychopath the depiction of mental health mental illness uh specifically schizophrenia in this film is fanciful to say the least um, is there a scene where she goes into a psychiatrist's office and he says before we start you don't mind if i drink smoke and don't listen to you <laughs> yeah like, I don't, like, a, like a real doctor <laughs> because um, i'm a real man <laughs> yeah I never got into this movie as a kid because I was expecting it to be an action thriller and it's really not. It's like a, a psychological thriller with occasional gunshots. And it's stylish and brutal, but also quite simplistic. It feels like more like a 90s psych- psychological thriller in the vein of something like Sleeping with the Enemy or something like that. It has a very subtle synth score from Brad Fiedel, the Terminator composer, which I quite liked. Um, and it is a decent film. It's quite atmospheric. It's really nicely made. It's like Catherine Bigelow in full Tony Scott mode, really. And if you can get beyond the silly premise and even sillier plot developments, uh, it's worth watch. Uh, like all the performances are nicely calibrated and everyone's on the same page. Um, so, yeah, it is worth a watch. But, yeah, it's not absolute best in Catherine Bigelow's uh canon because it's clearly near dark but um it's good enough six out of job really louise fletch is in this as is richard jenkins richard jenkins is he Mm. sporting a full thick head of hair (laughs) no he's not he's quite a funny character actually he's the like lawyer for ron silver and basically every time like jamie lee curtis like arrests ron silver for like saying something creepy to her 
he is like Richard Jenkins just comes storming into the police station and says, right, unhandcuff him. You've got absolutely no evidence. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to sue your ass. And he's just really angry. So he just storms through the room, shouts at people and then walks out again. He does it about three or four times. Amazing. Good for you. I, believe it, I think his acting career is based on just my dad on a day to day basis. <laughs> Um, I, Tom Sizemore must have been really proud when he went home to his wife after this film and she said oh you've been cast in a film and he said yeah I'm robber <laughs> yeah he um, <laughs> it's one of those performances where it's so early on in the film that it's possible that the credits happen after he's dead <laughs> um, so yeah well will I watch this will I not who knows probably not I think, yeah it maybe if it's on Prime or something at some point. Or it is now. It is on Prime. And it's it's worth a watch, but it's not essential. Okay, so I'm gonna do this super quickly. I watched um the version I've got is called Spanish Rose. It's also called Point of Impact. It's described on Wikipedia as an action film starring Michael Parry, but I question that. Obviously Michael Parry and Michael Ironside good. Um Michael Parry is a customs officer who, in a in a botched, it's kind of basically he, he hangs around at the docks, and then when a ship comes in, he bursts on it. Says, "Are there any drugs in the way? Give him me if there are." And one of his, I think his name is Cullen. One of his, um, one of the people on his team is obviously just completely corrupt, and mm-hmm. he shoots someone and frames Michael Parry for it. So Michael Parry loses his job. And he is a down the middle, like sort of straight A Catholic schoolboy, right? Michael Parry. And he loses his job as a customs officer. And the first thing he does, he's looking for work, turns up at Michael Ironside's house. And Michael Ironside instantly sets him up for his hot wife to frame him, clearly to frame him for something. And is just admits that everything he owns is stolen. He lives in this villa and he's just clearly suspicious and involved in like, arms and drug running. And Michael Parry just takes the job. And 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 I thought, is this like an undercover thing? But no, there's scenes where he's having a conversation with his like mentor, fisher on a fishing boat, saying, I just think there's something been off about him. And I thought, fucking no shit. There's something <laughs> off about him. Um, and, and so the whole film is ridiculous. It's like, oh, is Michael Ironside, uh, is, is he dicky or is he just a straight A? And you're like, no, he's dicky. He's very clearly dicky. Um, there's a brilliant scene in this film where Barbara Carrera, who I've never come across before, is Michael Ironside's hot wife. And she's seducing Michael Parry as he acts as her bodyguard because there was like a, she was kidnapped. So Michael Ironside hires Michael Parry to look after her while he's out of the country sort of thing, dealing drugs and guns. And he, she goes swimming, and Michael Parry runs upstairs, going through his like bureau and stuff. Michael Ironside's personal paperwork, looking for something incriminating. Mm. And she comes upstairs, right? And she's in the doorway, and she's watching Michael Parry going through all this paperwork and like looking really intent and flicking through folders. And she says, "What are you doing?" And he turns around really suddenly, shuffles all the paper together, like slams the the bureau shut and goes, oh, I was just looking for some swimming trunks. (laughs) And I thought, were you, though? Because if I was looking for some swimming trunks, I wouldn't start going through someone's mail. Um, So, yeah, it just it just a brilliantly silly sequence. And um, and and, and it goes on. And there was a bit in this film I fast forwarded, to be honest. And it just is just tedious from then on. That's the best part Mm. of the film, because it's just. Someone this rifling is... through a bureau. <laughs> <Yeah. Bloody hell. laughs> so many peaks in 
hey, it's better than Gene Hackman jogging naked and slowly across the dock. <laughs> yeah. um, so oh this, this, yeah, um, and then the film pans out, and it's just, you know, does does she love him? Is she with Michael Ironside? Does anyone care? The answer, of course, <laughs> is no. And yeah, and I fast forward to the middle just to the end, and it's just again, it's just Coronation Street with bums. It's really boring. So, so that was Spanish Rose, and finally, and clearly in my film of the week, Rupert, mm-hmm. for the first time ever, I watched Multiplicity. I was absolutely ecstatic. Just desperate for some Keaton. I thought, we were, is I, it going to be Pacific Heights? Or is it going to be Multiplicity? <laughs> it's got to be one or the other. After watching, after watching The Flash and thinking, I really like Michael Keaton, I was sitting here, Faye was getting food ready, and I said, I'll choose this for film. And I had three or four horrors lined up. And as we were going through these horrors, and I was reading up the, you know, the synopsis to her, she said, is that, is that Multiplicity? I used to love that film. And I put it on, and I had a whale of a time. What a film. Have you ever seen it? No. Right? Uh, it's, this is a 1996, like, PG comedy, right? So I had low hopes. So I thought, I'm going to look at Michael Keaton's and Ruley here for an hour and a half. I'm fine. Don't know about anyone else. <laughs> it's directed by Harold Ramis. It is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Right? It starts off, and uh, admittedly, the, <laughs> maybe the uh, sexual politics aren't up to scratch. So um, Michael Keaton plays a guy called Doug Kinney, who's a construction worker. And he lives with Andy McDowell, who cannot act, but that's fine. And he's just completely overrun. He's also clearly a neglectful husband. He's just like he's got they've got two kids who are wonderfully pushed to the side to get out of the way. And so the funny stuff Michael Keaton it's deals with happened in a film uh, and in his wife when he's stressed, and he's working too much and he's making mistakes and he's losing his mind. And of course, he gets a job working in this weird p- putting up some fucking stairs in some bloody laboratory or whatever and the doctor says actually i can i can clone people and it's really cheap because you know we'll just treat it as medical testing and we can we can clone you and just follow the results so he clones himself sounds ethical yeah totally and again much as in the wonderful predestination the science is again pushed to one side so the comedy can take the you know take the brunt of it so He's got a clone of himself who lives in a garage at the end of this garden, this house that he's permanently doing up, but he's too busy to finish. So he, the idea is that his this clone can deal with like his job and he can spend more time with his family. But then he realizes that you know even then the clone doing the job we call number two and he's number one. He just thinks actually the family life is full on, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just get another clone so I can just fuck off basically. They can live in the garage together. And I can just, one of them can look after the family, one can do the job, and I can just do what I want. And, and of course, hilarity ensues. And it genuinely does, right? Because Michael Keaton, showing again that he's solid, solid titanium. The comedy here isn't just, it's not in the in in the verbosity of it. It's also in the, in the physical performance. Because, of course, mm-hmm. at the end of it, he's playing four versions of himself. One who's, like, really sort of alpha male. One who's him and just really, like, pu- pulled from, like, sort of pillar to post. One who's quite camp and, like, a homebody. And one who is, like, a clone of the third one. And it's like, you know, you make a copy of a copy of a copy. And <laughs> it's not as good. And he's basically a complete <laughs> dullet who's just, like obviously got learning difficulties but not not in a in like a, an embarrassing awkward way um and it just boils down to michael keaton being brilliant trying to keep 
trying to keep everything together, playing these four characters. And it, it, I was laughing at just as, as, at his reactions to things. And what an example of how brilliant this film is, right? Especially when Mike Keaton is on screen, is that it's un, nothing is quotable. I can't mm. quote any funny lines because it's it's Michael Keaton. It's yeah. if if anyone else was in this film, it would be shit. I swear to God. And if you watch it, you'll see the exact same thing. It's it's his reactions to things. His there's a sequence, and it, and if I describe the sequence to you, you'd think oh 90s comedy with this. He goes out with his wife on a date to the same place his clone is on a date with like a blonde bimbo. Right. Okay. So you can you can imagine yes. like the kind of they see each other and they're hiding from each other, and they're mixing each other up and the girls are talking to them and and but it's solid gold because it's Michael Keaton. Um, like there's, again, I'm not going to do it justice. I'm not even going to try to. But there's a bit where the 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 real Michael Keaton sits down with a blonde bimbo and she says, "Weren't you?" Which is a running joke throughout the film. Weren't you just wearing a different coat? And he mm. basically says really quickly, "Oh, I bumped into a guy in the toilets who loved it and we swapped." It's a completely normal thing to do. It happens all the time. <laughs> But because it's Michael Keaton, it's funny. And yeah. there's a bit where like his dullard clone, um, they're trying to keep everyone out of the house because Andy McDowell's walking around. And there's a joke where like the dullard clone keeps on calling Michael Keaton Steve. And there's and they're trying to all and he's hiding all the clones away from Andy McDowell and trying to get them back into the garage. And there's a scene where the dullard clone is like in in the house and he's wandering around and Andy McDowell is like just missing him. And it's like this tense sequence because where she sees him, he's clearly just a doofus. It is clearly not the real Michael Keaton. But then as she's about to just go back up to bed, he just goes, Steve. And she just comes back down and sees him. And uh, it, it's just, but it's like a fish out of water comedy. that's actually good. And I will clearly be watching this again. It's clearly my film of the week. And, but I will say this, right? I know I'm really sucking it off. You have to push Andy McDowell to one side. The ending much like the science in the film, the the last five minutes exist just to have an ending because the, the what's fun here is looking at Michael Keaton. So, Andy so, McDowell has tried to destroy great comedies before with Groundhog Day and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Now we've got another to add to the list. <laughs> yeah. It's every time she's on the, it's you've got Michael Keaton right doing this amazing like quadruple balancing act and keeping this whole film together and like creasing me up. And then every time she comes in, she's, why are you talking to me like this? And you think, oh, my God, why are you in this film? Mm. Why can't you just be Michael Keaton with a wig on? <laughs> so, um, that yeah. That would have been amazing. I, I had a, if, you, if you have a, a couple of beers and watch this, it's a good evening. It's just a funny film. Where can I watch it? Um, it was on Amazon Prime. Good. Yeah, multiple. Really absolutely loved it. it. Absolutely loved it. Be watching it again. Obviously, I'll have to wait until November because it's not a horror film. But oh yeah, it's your it's your horror season, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Which le- leads us to the penultimate. Um, oh, actually, I've got a a word from our sponsor, Rupert. All right. Okay. And the old advertising revenue. Today's word from our sponsor is four. So we got the Arkansas now, and the Arkansas last time was, of course, two titans of cinema. Norman Greasy Ratface Bastard Reedus to see Thomas Howell. Mm. And we've it's it's a quiet one this week. We've only had one response. I'm just gonna 
pull it up on my phone. Do you want to do yours first to see how you fare? Yeah, I, I didn't do very well with this one, although it was only a first pass, but I just thought, am I going to do better than this? And it was quite fun. Um, C. Thomas Howell is in The Hitcher with <laughs> Rutger Hauer, who's in Sin City with Elijah Wood, who's in The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey with Martin Freeman, who's in The Battle of the Five Armies with Billy Connolly, who's in Boondock Saints <laughs> with Norman Reedus. So that's, I think that's a five-stepper. Five-stepper? That's yeah, not bad. Uh, whoops. Well. Billy Connolly is in Lord of the Rings. Yes. He's in, he's in the last Hobbit movie. Is is Jack D in it as well? Bloody hell, yeah. yeah Michael just... McIntyre rocks up as a dwarf. Do they, do they only cast bad comedians? Um, I'm just looking at this. So yeah, Max said, Reedus is in Boondock Saints with Willem Dafoe, who's in Platoon with Charlie Sheen, who's in Red Dawn with C. Thomas Howell. Oh, good. Once again, you've been beaten by the audience because you're a piece of shit. I didn't. I think I would have default. That was probably a much easier route than Billy Connolly's. We know five to, films. I've told you off air, right? You need every time we do an Arkansas, you need to just stay at the cover of Platoon for hours at a time to give you yeah. ideas. Um. So, before we go into um the final the final movement. What is the Arkin's Dark? Well, actually, what's your film of the week? Mine is just Multiplicity, clearly. The Hidden. Yeah. Is my film You've, of the week. I'm going to watch The Hidden. I'm that this week. That's that's going to happen. Um, Multiplicity and The Hidden, classic double feature. There. Who is the Arkin's Dark for next time then? Ooh, yeah. Let's think about that. Let's think about that. Shall we go with ooh, Wallace Shawn? That's right. I was tempted. Choice. I was tempted to sound in McDowell then, but I, I feel like the, 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 it's the same generation, isn't it? Mm. So instead, I'm gonna. You're gonna say. Oh, by the way, and this is another. This is something I was gonna mention earlier on when you were talking about the Princess Bride. Wallace Shawn was in the Princess Bride, obviously. Yeah. Faye often quotes whenever we talk about gambling. His line in um, National Lampoon's Vegas Vacation, where he's like a twat. Um, croupier or like yeah. dealer or whatever and she always says changing 1500 and I thought it was changing 100 but I don't think it's that denomination of currency do you know right. which denomination of currency it is weirdly I don't have that information to hand okay actually. well if anyone does it's the men who talk at outlook.com but so Wallace Shawn two Nicholas Cage. Okay. I was gonna seems, say, I was gonna say Randall Cobb then, but it, that's that's unfair, isn't it? That's unfair. Do we accept films where the actor only plays, only provides voice acting? Well, like an animated film. Yes. Yeah, of course. Okay. Well, have you done it already? No, I'm just thinking. It does open up possibilities. That's all. Okay, okay. Um, right then. So yeah, that's it. and I think the only way to end this is obviously by telling everyone of our listeners that we love them. And I think uh, we should. I think we can tell them all 
a joke actually because we've got a joke here from from Max. Oh um, nice. I'm already sighing. Pre sighing. Um right, okay. <clears throat> just put my glasses on the end of my nose here. I saw a quiz online about Rocky, Rambo, and the Expendables, but I wasn't interested in the slightest. I wasn't interested in the slightest. It's nice when listeners get involved in the show, isn't it? And they use their sometimes. What about this time? (laughs) Sometimes... But not this time. I've got a whole list of these to go. So sorry, Can you, everyone. I'm just trying to think of the last time I, last time I enjoyed something. <laughs> the last time I felt joy. When was that? <laughs> yeah. Felt the girl in school felt it up. Joy Jones. Um, that's right. it. Yep. That's that's I lo- everything. I love you. Love you all. Farewell for now. Hey, it's Tia Carrere, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys.